know, one of the things I advocate is, you know, you, you want to be an expert in something, but that something needs to be a mission critical and be large enough, you know, that you can have some flexibility. So you can be the auto mechanic that knows how to repair McLarens, but if there's three McLarens in your city, you, you don't have more than three clients. Caution. Listening to this podcast may motivate you to make positive changes in your life, identify ways to accelerate your career trajectory, and develop a path towards financial freedom. This is the Career Meets World podcast, and I'm your host, Edward Gorbis, and I've spent the last 10 years focused on helping thousands of people advance their career while in parallel teaching a secret recipe to reach financial independence. And I'm here to share the untold stories of successful people and teach thousands of listeners how to develop a growth mindset. Our minds are malleable and everyone has the power to change their mindset through perseverance, dedication, and a passion for learning. So if you're ready to skyrocket your business and financial literacy, turn up the volume and let's dive right in. This is the Career Meets World podcast. Welcome back, podcast family. You know what time it is. We have an incredible guest with us today, and his name is Daniel De Jesus, and he is the vice president of Times Square Capital, a global asset manager with over $14 billion in assets under management. And in his current role, he's responsible for investing recommendations across emerging markets for all of the firm's products. And prior to joining Times Square, Daniel was the head of research and CEO of DPM Capital, where he sourced equity investment ideas on a global basis and helped manage the trading and portfolio risk functions of the firm. And prior to that, Daniel worked at Millennium Management, where he was the lead analyst for a portfolio of Latin American and Southern European equities. Daniel started his career at JP Morgan as an associate in the Latin American Derivatives Structuring Group, focusing on helping corporations use derivatives for risk management purposes. He graduated summa cum laude from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania with a bachelor's of science in economics and a concentration in finance and statistics. And he's currently a member of the CFA Institute. More interestingly, he's also fluent in Spanish and Portuguese. Super excited to chat with Daniel today. Welcome to the show, Daniel. It is so good to have you on. How are you doing? You just had a baby. Congratulations to your family. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. It's one of my first, uh, (laughs) <laughs> formal uh, assignments after having the baby. Although I have to admit that with all the reading I've been doing over the past couple of weeks, all the baby books we've had to browse through, it, uh, it's definitely been um, a little bit more um, you know, busier than I expected. But I'm extremely thrilled to have a two-week-old uh, baby um, born September 18th. I'm healthy, happy, and a happy family here as well. So very happy overall. Awesome. I'm very happy to hear that. It's definitely a blessing to bring in a newborn baby and life into this world. So congratulations to you and your family. Thanks for spending some time with us today. And we're going to unpack a lot. Uh, We're going to talk about a lot of different things today. And look, I have deep respect for you because you have this immense 
knowledge around finance. You have some great advice that you're hopefully going to unravel for many people today as there's a lot of things going on in the world right now. And many people are concerned or are curious or want to learn about how can they really position themselves for a better future. Great. I'm happy to spill whatever useful advice I, I think I've gathered over a couple of years. <laughs> I think there's plenty to share there. So before we dig into that, I really want to make sure that the audience, the listeners get to know who you are, where you come from. So can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing, speed us through that and where you are today? Yeah. So very quickly, um, born and raised in Puerto Rico. Um, I've spent all my life up to high school there. Um, single child, um, father is an engineer, mother is a pharmacist. Um, and in reality, you know, I came to the United States once I graduated uh, high school to come to college at the University of Pennsylvania. Spent four years there, did finance and statistics as uh, majors. And I later relocated to New York full time. And I've been working in different financial firms from investment banks to hedge funds to asset managers over the past uh, close to 10 years. Awesome. So you grew up in Puerto Rico. Uh, We have, in full disclosure, had one of your good friends on, Juan Mendez, on a previous episode. So if you've not checked out that episode, feel free to do so as well after you finish listening to the conversation with Daniel. That being said, I'm curious just... That transition, even from Puerto Rico, right? It's a part of the U.S. and rightfully so, it is still a transition to come to the mainland and kind of integrate into society here. What were some of the takeaways for you as you stepped foot here, as you started college and started working here? Yeah, so um, the reality is that uh, Puerto Rico prepares you slightly because you do have to speak English in school and you have to kind of interact and and you're kind of ingrained in the U.S. culture, but it's still pretty big culture shock once you arrive. Um, And I I studied at Philadelphia, which is a pretty diverse um, city. So um, from my first interactions, which were actually before landing there for college, I did uh, two programs um, for uh, learning and preparing for college in Philadelphia and and Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And they, they both were very insightful in understanding the interaction of, you know, not just uh, what you're learning, but who you're inter- interacting with, race, all these topics that are pretty complex that are not necessarily covered as well um, coming from, you know, monoculture, mono so to speak. So it, it, it was for me, because I had those programs, I think the coming into college was a little bit more of a, a easier path than than most, but I say that, you know, those programs definitely were very enlightening in that sense. Certainly. Do you think those programs help you even to this day? For sure. So I think, uh, first off, I'm, I'm in finance because of one of these programs. The first one was in Urbana-Champaign, and I was trying to see if I was interested in engineering. And if you know Urbana-Champaign, it's a, it's a town in the middle of cornfields, more than three hours away from Chicago, and you're doing experiments with corn, and it seems interesting, but and the next summer I had to do the lead program at Wharton, which is the business school at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, this is a business program where you have to 
basically come up with in stock pitches or marketing pitches, very basic for high school level students and go to New York to Goldman Sachs, which is a large investment bank and do a, a skit of an NBA lottery and pretending that you are, you know, pitching a stock or an idea. And it's all really fun. And, and that really, you know, got to me. I, I was very big into math and, and, you know, I wanted to find a field where I could apply it and it, it fit together. So once I went to those programs, I, I had an idea of what I wanted to do. So definitely. And, and you know, another example is uh, one of my, my best man of my wedding um, and one of my good friends from Puerto Rico, he's actually, we first interacted in the lead program at Wharton. So I have lifelong friendships from there that I can take home too. That's awesome. So I'd be curious to get your perspective because today, especially with online learning and this crazy fast shift to Zoom learning or any other video conferencing, but universities are a little bit different right now. So I think from your lens and your experience in your education process, what's your take on it? What's your opinion on this new movement that we're having? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it different? Like what is going through your head right now? I think it's excellent. I think it democratizes a lot of knowledge that should have been made more broadly available. And it also unmasks the fact that 90% of the universities that exist that charge pretty similar rates to the other 10% were not offering the appropriate value. And the 10% that are definitely worth it um, are worth it more because of the network, not necessarily because of the content. So if you democratize content, all of a sudden, you don't need to sacrifice two years of your life necessarily to go to an MBA. I mean, if you go to an MBA that's a top 25 program, you're still probably going to be worth it. But you may as well enjoy those two years and working and learning online a lot of the subjects that you would learn in these schools as well. So I think it's great. I think it will bring pricing of education uh, down um, and it we already see it happening in other countries, which is one of the things I've learned in, in, in my current role. And so it, it, it definitely is a net, net a benefit to society. Couldn't agree with you more. I, I definitely believe that this transition that we're seeing and experiencing in real time affords more people the opportunity to learn this super valuable information that they can apply readily and quickly quickly into the workforce, into their business, whatever it is they're doing in their life, they can access it a lot quicker. I think the price point, hopefully over time will go down as well. Right. Yep. Definitely. And and we, you know, we've seen a lot of new programs being created, even by the leading institutions in the country, and realizing that they can offer their on-campus program. But if they complement that for people that don't necessarily want to be on campus, but are working and want to learn a valuable subject and offer an online master's that is, for example, my, my alma mater, Penn, offers a master's in computer and information technology for people that don't have a bachelor's degree in anything that has to do with engineering. So that's just perfect. Like that program is probably gonna be more helpful for 90% of the people um, than you know going to an MBA. Because the skill set that you're acquiring and the time that you're taking to do it while you're still working is incredibly valuable. So 
Um, I'm, I'm all for that. And we'll see a lot more of that from these institutions. Well said, my friend. And I'm also interested in understanding that, look, for you, I know that learning is a lifelong event, right? You're constantly mm-hmm. trying to improve yourself right now. Obviously, you're reading some baby books, but <laughs> in general, you're constantly working on bettering yourself and putting yourself and your family in a much better position. Uh, that's certainly why I wanted to connect with you and really expand on that process. And I know sure. that post-college, you kind of quickly ran into the finance world. You're doing great things today um, on the capital management front. And I think there's a lot there for us to discuss. Can you talk at a high level a little bit about what you're doing today? What does your role entail? And um, how do you get into that field? Sure. So uh, currently, I work at an asset manager um, called Times Square Capital. Um, in that uh, firm, I basically uh, am in charge of recommending investments um, in specific area. My area of expertise is uh, what I call emerging markets, ex- excluding Asia. I'm more expert in Latin America, but certainly knowledgeable in other markets such as you know, various countries in Africa and Eastern Europe. So um, it's a very exciting job. I've had other experiences prior to this that have built up my my resume um, to prepare me for this opportunity. Um, but it's one that I've enjoyed so far quite a bit. Uh, it, it definitely involves a lot of traveling, a lot of underground due diligence, and um, a lot of uh, working knowledge of many different topics because it's not very sector specific. I, I get to meet with the, uh, the car manufacturer in Mexico and next day I'm meeting with the technology company in Brazil. So it's it's quite quite varied in that sense. So there's two things that I want to learn a little bit more about. And I'm sure a lot of people are curious because one, how do you get into asset management? And then the second part is, we'll we'll dig into it in a second, but there's so much value in international work experience. And obviously it's a little bit different today and, and I'm sure the world will go back to some semblance of normalcy. So we'll talk about what that experience has been like for you. But first, let's really look at how do you go into asset management? Uh, how do you land a role like you have right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I've been asked uh, by many different students over the years that want to jump ahead straight into asset management. And my recommendation has always been um, if you can apply to one of the broader general roles in one of the larger banks to get your foot into finance before then deciding uh, if you really like asset management and what part of asset management you like. That's always been my recommendation because in asset management, of course, banks do have their divisions that you can apply to, and I could recommend that as well. But most firms in asset management, I would say, are, are small and big firms control most of the assets, but in number of firms, most of them are small. So if you start from college and you jump into one of them, you don't really build a very big network that you can rely on if, God forbid, things go awry in that firm and you want to change into a different firm. So um, I always recommend to start with the big banks. And and if you're really passionate and you know that's what we want to do from the get-go, there are roles in research that you can apply to. Um, But most importantly is to keep an open mind with regards to where you start 
and and then you will learn where where you fit in because um, asset management is so broad that most people think it's all about stocks um, and bonds and there's so many other asset classes that when you're 19 years old in college you say i want to do stocks but what if it happens that you want to do um, convertible notes arbitrage which in, involves some analysis of what you know stocks are so it could be that you are into a more specific niche so i i definitely advocate for the broader roles big network then you dive in where you feel um, you already have enough of an interest. I love that. And if we extrapolate that a little bit further mm-hmm. and you look at any career, right? So I'm, I'm sure we're going to have more listeners related to the finance interest. Sorry, I wanted to provide a, a very interesting example on, on, on this uh, thing because I was one of the victims of, of thinking I wanted something and uh, applying and then finding out, you know, what I got was very interesting. So my first real job was um, an internship uh, at JP Morgan in 2009. Um, at the time, I was very passionate about doing either a foreign exchange or emerging markets. Um, but I was more into foreign exchange at the time. So um, I put my preferences through and uh, the last one I put, it was something I didn't even understand. It was called Securitized Products Group. I'm like, I don't know what that is. And then when I got my role uh, for that summer, it was to be a, a trader uh, at the Securitized Products Group. And I'm like, these guys don't like me. This is, I got the bad luck of the draw. And uh, what it was, because I couldn't even know what it was, I Googled it and it turned out to be the group that traded mortgage-backed securities. So imagine you in 2009, you're trying to understand and get into finance and you feel that you're getting thrown into the group that was uh, largely responsible for the financial crisis if you read all of the news flow and you must think this group sucks. You think that people are leaving in droves, that it's a dead trading floor. And uh, the interesting thing is that when I arrived, and this is one of the important lessons is, you know, where there's a lot of crisis, there's a lot of opportunity. So um, these markets were extremely illiquid and these markets were extremely back price discovery, which for a trading outfit means there's a lot of money to be made. And so the funny thing is about the beginning of this summer, um, everyone's like, ah, you know, poor you. By the end of the summer, (laughs) all the kids that were at the other desk were trying to get a job at this one, right? so in 2020, I think it's really interesting because there's certainly a lot of industries that have been hit a lot in, by the pandemic. And that may, you know, you may think that working at Airbnb is a terrible job. Who wants to do that? Travel is not working out. But in, in reality, and, and obviously, you know, in particular, a lot of these companies have had a lot of layoffs. But in reality, once a company goes through these layoffs, they're pretty lean and, and they're ready to hire again pretty quickly. And those people that get through the door once the crisis has passed, um, I've seen that they've been very successful. So anyways, just wanted to throw that in there because uh, it's it, you don't want to zero yourself into a particular opportunity at, at the beginning. Such an important lesson. Thank you for yeah. sharing all of that. It's really important to understand that, especially as we step into our careers, I think your experience, my experience are unique in the sense that we had one vision it was 
relatively clear, but we ultimately land in something completely different. And part of the reason for that is we went down somewhat of a generalist path. We were open opportunities. As you mentioned, chaos often breeds a lot of opportunity. And this year has been another example of that, right? Your experience in 2008 led you to where you are today, or at least it led you on a path. And yep. I think I have a set of advice that I offer people as I coach different individuals, but I'm curious to hear what your perspective is as it relates to launching into your career or even thinking about pivots, right? There, yep. there are things that we believe we want to do, or there is a perception of where we might want to go. But how do you embrace the uncertainty? How do you embrace the chaos? What is it that you personally do that allows you to step into that moment, start playing offense and really want to win the game? Yeah, I think the term generalist is um, a lot of times misconstrued and viewed uh, negatively. I think uh, people that are quite intellectually curious will naturally want to learn as much as possible from as many um, areas of knowledge that they can expand on. And for me, it's it's been the case. You do need to have one underlying string that ties all your opportunities, kind of. For me, that string has been, um, whether it's been at a bank or a hedge fund or an asset manager, buy side, sell side, it's always had that string of, you know, I want to apply my Spanish and Portuguese knowledge. I want to work in emerging markets, whether my clients are from emerging markets or whether my investors are from emerging markets or whether I'm investing in emerging markets. So it, it always has to have some sort of string. But, um, you know, apart from that, you should definitely uh, try to, you know, one of the things I advocate is, uh, you know, you, you want to be an expert in something, but that something needs to be a mission critical and be large enough, you know, that you can have some flexibility. So you can be the auto mechanic that knows how to repair McLarens. But if there's three McLarens in your city, you, you don't have more than three clients. And uh, I've learned that my niche, for example, um, has been emerging markets, excluding Asia. I could say that I cover Asia but I don't speak Korean, I don't speak Mandarin. A lot of the companies that report in these countries don't even translate into English. I would be fooling everyone if I told them I'm a great investor in these countries. So I have to focus. But at the same time, Emerging Markets Excluding Asia is, is a large enough universe that I can fit into many roles, in many different firms if need be, right? So um, I think that's one thing that I, I, I would add to the conversation there. For sure. And to go a little bit deeper on that is you've had these, this incredible opportunity to travel and to really immerse yourself into, as I said earlier, the international work experience. And look, as America gets more diverse, as the world gets more diverse, or at least even more integrated in the workplace, and we're continuously trending through that, I'm curious, what did you learn? through all of that experience as you engage with people in different cultures, you conducted business across different countries. What were some of your biggest takeaways? Sure. So um, with regards to uh, traveling internationally, I think it, it's been a, it started since I was at JP Morgan and 
there's no substitute for it when they say that business travel will not come back. I, I know it won't come back in the full form, but um, there's certainly certain elements that will remain pretty strong. I will not be able to understand um, the Brazilian investments we have without speaking to the taxi driver in Brasilia or in Sao Paulo. And I will not be able to understand what the products are if I'm not there, because certain products are copycats of US products, but a lot of them are pretty unique. And to this day, I, uh, you know, we have someone in the team that covers Asia and, and he understands you know, the Alibaba products and the Tencent products, which you know, have uh, wallets that can be used for many different transactions. Uh, you know, he knows them better than me because he downloads the app and travels with it to China. And it's, it's really uh, important to complement your, your knowledge. And I would say that um, as an in investor, there's certainly been, it's been both ways. Meaning um, I do have some experience working with developed markets and a lot of these best business models um, are inherited and brought to emerging markets and, and, and vice versa. So um, it, the, the, you know, the international experience, I think it's a prerequisite to having you know, a very full-fledged you know, investment, um, what should I call it, um, in, investment knowledge so that you can apply to your, your ideas. I love that. And look, we don't know what the world's going to look like going forward, what flavor of business travel we're going to have. So a lot of your experiences from the past were extremely valuable to where mm -hmm. you are today. What's your take and perspective on how to get that type of deep exposure and knowledge moving forward, right? Like how do you conduct business right now as an asset manager without stepping foot on the ground, or as you said, not being able to interact with that taxi driving, taxi driver and really getting flavor for what is happening and how they feel, how that impacts your potential investment. Yeah. So I think the impact of technology can't be understated. It used to be that you would be an analyst in technology or you would be an analyst in financials or you would be an analyst in utilities. And right now, I feel that that's such a misrepresentation. Technology firms impact industrial sector, financial sector, utility sector. There's no way to getting around a technology. You can't silo yourself and say, well, I know everything and I don't care about you know, the impacts of technology. So the best that we can do, and for me, uh, that I'm already, I guess, mid-level mid, mid through my career, it would be to kind of keep learning, reading these books that kind of show you uh, the impact of technology, how these companies were started, and what are the next big things, whether it's artificial intelligence and how it impacts your particular sectors. I think that's the best way to stay, um, you know, as a relevant analyst and, and not ignore uh, the, you know, the, the latest uh, trends. So, Look, we have a lot of people who are probably extremely fascinated by your ability to manage assets and investments at a large scale. And I know that personal finance is near and dear to your heart as well as it is to me. And I want to make sure that we can extract and 
share some of that wisdom that you personally have. And if we kind of flip the script a little bit and look at it from the lens of individual investment. Yeah. How do you look at this world? How do you personally invest? And what are some of your like biggest tips and tricks for the end of 2020 and really thinking about the next three, five, 10 years? Yeah. I, I think I, I want to start by saying the basics um, which probably other guests of yours have, have mentioned, which is um, you can't really start investing uh, with your own after-tax savings before you pay down, you know, your expensive debt. Um, and expensive, we can, I will generally define as right now anything with an interest rate that's double digit or high single digit, right? If you have a mortgage that's a 3%, that I would probably say that's not expensive. So start by paying off that expensive debt and then obviously allocate as much possible to all the pre-tax savings that you can do, like 401ks and IRAs. And after that, you have to uh, think about uh, what to do with your after-tax savings. And one of the key things that I think is good taking away from this conversation is that um, saving the first, you know, going from $1,000 in savings to $10,000 is harder than going from 10,000 to 50 and much harder and 10 to 50 is harder than going from 50 to 100 meaning it gets easier over time not necessarily because it's easier to invest but a you've already have the discipline in starting to save b you've seen the money compound c you're probably making more money two or three years down the road than now so you you you're going to wake up one day and say wow how did i arrive at that amount of money and it started with a very small amount and that is just about consistency and I guess if I have to think well how do I start investing that money um, well I have very very simple piece of advice and unfortunately it's not going to be a simple solution and um, there is no substitute to doing your own due diligence on whatever you invest by that, I mean, there's a lot of solutions that are advertised as um, very simple, put $500 a month here and let your money compound, but you still have to analyze those alternatives with each other. There's a lot of robo-advisors that have different product offerings that they all sound like they're the same, but they're not. So I think I, I would definitely um, encourage people to and research them and start contributing money to those, uh, you know, th those funds if they feel comfortable. And otherwise, if you go the extra mile, you can start investing in your own um, alternatives, right? As well. Hey there, listeners. I just wanted to pop in and let you know that as a part of Career Meets World, I am now taking on exclusive one-on-one -on -one clients who are hungry leaders or entrepreneurs and want to learn how to succeed under immense pressure. I believe that being an effective business leader is equal parts understanding your subconscious and developing and executing a personalized growth plan. These two aspects continually build upon each other and my coaching practice is designed to amplify your confidence levels and provide you a toolkit to thrive in any situation. Career Meets World is the ultimate achievement partner, and we support our clients with an always-on approach. So if you're ready to unleash your wildest leadership potential and take control of your success, 
find Career Meets World or me personally, Edward Gorbis, on LinkedIn and shoot me a short message about your goals with the title, Let's Start. And now it's time to get back to today's episode. So I appreciate you bringing up the fact that First of all, it's important to build a budget for yourself and understand basic savings, paying off debts, mm-hmm. and then you're able to start making investments. So that process is incredibly important. And if you've done that, I commend you. If you're mm-hmm. just starting out, you're interested, make sure you build those sheets for yourself. There are plenty of tools out there that help you figure out what your balance sheet looks like right? It's no different than what a company would do. You just do it at a smaller scale. So look, Daniel, what are some of your favorite tools? There's a lot of things to look at on the market from asset classes. There's everything to invest in. I think a lot of people look at the stock market as the best place to start, but that's not necessarily the truth for everyone. So I'm curious if you're giving just broad guidance, right? What are some places that you'd recommend people start as well as diversify? I would say, and, and, and not to uh, make a very long-winded answer, but for starters, if you are not as passionate about finance or stock picking, you should definitely go um, passive. But if you don't even know what a stock is or a bond is, um, you should probably start with another asset class, and that's, that's real estate. I think it's the best way to, um, you know, it, it's kind of like this the equivalent of the person that opens their stock account, puts a thousand dollars in, closes it and doesn't open it for 30 years, right? It, fortunately for a lot of people, and there's, for most of us, there's a lot of cognitive biases and real estate prices don't go up and down by the minute. They technically do, but you don't see it or feel it because you're not tracking the house that was bought next to yours six months from now etc so you don't necessarily feel it but you know it's the same impact you you want to start with that kind of asset class and compound on it but if you have a minimal interest on finance on which i guess a lot of your guests would be because they're listening to this podcast you definitely want to start um, building you know your 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 net worth so to speak so um, I, for one, use personal capital, and I look at my, um, you know, all of my slate of investments, my mortgage, my uh, credit card debt, and I analyze it on a, you know, pretty recurring basis. But I don't act on it, meaning uh, I like to not open the account when the stocks are going down or anything, so because. I just, I, I, I'm not interested in acting on this and I'm not interested in putting a specific number of I'm worth this or that. I'm interested in seeing how it compounds over time. And that's what keeps me engaged in these sort of applications. And so I, I definitely use that. And for budgeting, I am not familiar with all the applications out there. I'm sure there's a lot of great ones. I, I still rely on an old Excel spreadsheet that I did five years ago and that I update. I download stuff and I classify them. So that's probably not the most efficient, but there's a lot of other tools that you can probably uh, use for, for budgeting as well. Awesome. So look, you had hit on something that's really important to understand. There's a fundamental difference between active and passive investing. Mm-hmm. The ultimate goal is still massive compound interest. I think it's 
fairly well-known fact that the stock market on average goes up about 10% a year. Obviously that's not a consistent number, but I think decade over decade, it literally is 10% every single year. So that being said, how does one even approach whether or not they should be a passive or active investor? And what would be your recommendation about just understanding your risk tolerance? Yeah, and, and I may contradict myself versus the last answer when I said passive, but I have a pretty strong opinion, maybe because I'm biased and I'm on the industry. There is no such thing as, as passive. And let me give you an example. Um, Roe advisor number one, recommends a portfolio of 80% stocks, 20% bonds. Their robo-advisor number two gives you the same recommendation. But then when you go, there's very a lot of differences. Number one, one of them may recommend that you invest in gold and other precious metals. The other one doesn't. One may recommend that you invest in real estate trusts. The other one doesn't. And even if you go to the stock allocation, there's a lot of active decisions they're making. So one robo-advisor that I'll leave anonymous because um, I was a client and I'm not anymore. And they decided that they want to allocate stocks and they want to do it by focusing on value stocks because they make this argument that value stocks outperform growth stocks over time. And they've done it, I, I don't know, a 30-year correlation. Well, in 2020, um, the Russell 1000 Growth Index, which is the largest 1000 companies by market capitalization, that index is up 24%. And the Russell 1000 value is down 12. So if a company is selling you, we're giving you the market return, but you, I'm putting the money into value stocks, you're making an active choice. You're, you, you did a, a, an analysis, but, but it still doesn't exclude the fact that it's a pretty active choice to focus on, on, on value stocks. And there's another robo-advisor not, I don't want to keep it too long, but that that says, well, instead of investing in the market by the weights, meaning if Amazon has a thousand times the weight of, you know, the stock of Dell, I'm going to put more weight in Amazon than Dell. They decide I'm going to put an equal weight on each sector, right? Which is another view, right? You're saying that over time, keeping a portfolio where each sector has the same weight is better than a portfolio where you know a few sectors are 40% of, of what you invest in. And that again has been pretty wrong. So uh, uh, obviously because of the pandemic, the bigger have gotten much bigger, especially if they're in technology. So I'm not for or against, I think you have to do your own due diligence. If you look at row advisors and their sites that compare them, there's some that are minus 2% for the year. There's some that are up 10 and they're selling the same product. So that's why I'm saying there's nothing that means 100% passive. So you need to do the work. Otherwise, as I said, there's other asset classes where if you don't care as much about finance, you can probably do as well. For sure. Um, always do your homework. <laughs> and <Yep. laughs> not, not all robo-advisors are created equal. So whether it's yep. the more common ones like Wealthfront or Betterment, obviously that's the mm -hmm. the branded ones that everyone knows, but there are so many other ways to quote unquote passively invest. Uh, I think both Daniel and I would recommend do your homework, do your due diligence, yep. understand your risk tolerance, understand how much you want to invest. And it's okay to get a 
advice, right? There are so many yeah. financial advisors and I think you hit this spot on, which is so many people aren't genuinely interested in finance and that's okay. Yeah, that's perfectly fine. Right. So understanding the importance of building wealth and giving yourself more opportunities in the future, because I truly believe that money gives you options. It gives you options for where to live, the lifestyle you want to lead, the future you want to provide your kids, if you want to have kids or what you want to do later in life. Money gives you options, but it takes time to build that and compound interest will get you there. So I appreciate your insight. Um, Look, Daniel, I want to make sure that people really get to know you. And we're going to have a little bit of fun. And as always, with all of our guests, uh, we want to make sure that we put them through the hot seat and ask them some some fun-filled questions. So, Daniel, are you ready to answer a couple of questions that are made just for you? For sure. All right, let's do this. Let's do a fun one first. Daniel, if you could only use one emoji for the rest of time, which one would it be? Oof. I, I kind of want to say the one that eh, I don't want to sound too, too, too pessimistic or anything, but the one that your the, the face is kind of like a, a little bit of a smirk. Uh, kind of like I use that a lot of times when I'm trying to like tease people or kind of get you know, to the bottom of what's happening. And it's, it's the one that I'm like one of the most familiar with, but yeah. <laughs> I love that. It's a little bit of a reflection of 2020 as well. So yeah. next question for you is, uh, look, you're reading a lot of books right now and especially related to uh, yeah. raising kids, but outside of that, what are, let's say your top three favorite books to read? Sure. So I would start with, um, one on organizational psychology. So Adam Grant is a professor at, at Wharton. And give, give and Take is, is you know, one of my favorite books in terms of learning, understanding the types of people that you have in the workplace or outside the workplace and, and how to best interact. Uh, uh, so I think that's, that's a great book. Um, and the other books that I like to read are more in biographies and, and sort of like understanding what makes some companies great. And, and, and I think Shoe Dog from Phil Knight uh, the, the story of how Nike was kind of like started is is a great book to kind of understand how great organizations are are made and and how great the the organizations are made by one person with one you know big desire um, and and another book that's related to that I think if, if you read um, the biography of Sam Walton from Walmart you know made in America it's a pretty old book but it, it to this day Walmart remains one of the great retailers and people say, well, why, why does Walmart continue to do so well? There's so many ways that they could have, you know, messed up over the years, even with the rise of e-commerce. How is it now that they're also so big in e-commerce and you go to a book that's 30 years old and you understand how that guy started that company and you understand how the rules that he set still permeate through the organization. So it's, it's great to kind of read those books. So, you know, right now I'm reading, or starting to read the, the book on, on Netflix that Reed Hastings, I think, just 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 came out with. And so I, I try to keep up to speed with these ones too, to kind of understand why some companies, you know, simply outperform. There's so much powerful wisdom in all those books that I think we can yeah. extract and insert into our lives as well. So 
I think whether you're reading about Walmart or a company like mm-hmm. Netflix that have mastered their their pie of the world, um, I think that's incredible that you're following that, you've implemented some of those things into your life. So look, one final question for you. Sure. If you were to teach one class at Warden, your uh, alma mater, what would be the title of that class and why? Um, oof, that's a that's an interesting one. Um, I don't. I, it could could I be qualified to teach it? I, I know a course that I would love to uh, give, but I don't know if I would be qualified for it. But uh, let me let me give it my best shot. I think uh, in in Warden, I would definitely uh, you know try to teach about negotiation there's already this course it exists in in Wharton but it's so crucial to everything related to your investments understanding why companies have some sort of edge in negotiating with their suppliers or their clients understanding how to get a promotion understanding how to you know fight for a a, a better a, you know treatment at a restaurant or whatever it is there's always like uh, something that you need to kind of negotiate so i feel uh, that's a very crucial subject that I would, I would like to, you know, maybe if not teach at least a uh, TA. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I think negotiation is by far my favorite topic to teach myself uh, when I work yeah. with my students. So I would love to see you do that one day. It's a challenge for you. Yeah, definitely. And before we let you off the hook, I think Daniel, you have so much to share with people. You are a charismatic guy who has done all the right things in terms of working hard learning consistently and putting himself in a place of opportunity. So what is the best way for people to get in touch with you if they want to connect? I think LinkedIn is the best way. Um, I'm happy to connect and, 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 you know, speak more. I think one of the great things is that I didn't do early is uh, connecting with people and just reaching out randomly. Um, the past few years, I've learned to just send random emails to people that I would think would never reply to me, but they do. And because a lot of people do make time, even if they seem to have an important title. Um, so I, I, I think in general, I'm very happy to connect. Awesome. So if you want to connect with Daniel, make sure to reach out to him on LinkedIn, uh, reference the Career Meets World podcast, and I'm sure he'll get back to you in a decent manner of time. But with that being said, Daniel, again, I love chatting with you. You have so much knowledge as it relates to finance and just in general business. So thank you for spending time with us today and sharing all of that. I look forward to seeing what's next for you. And again, congratulations to your family. Thank you so much. And as we always say at Career Meets World, go unleash your wildest potential. Thank you so much, Daniel. Excellent. Thank you so much. Hey. Thanks so much for listening to the Career Meets World podcast. I would love to get to meet you. There are a couple of ways we can connect. You know I love my LinkedIn. Simply search for Career Meets World or Edward Gorbis and feel free to connect. Second is via Instagram at Career Meets World. And third is through our website. I have a special spot for you full of fun, free resources. All you have to do is go to careermeetsworld.com subscribe to our newsletter, 
and we'll provide you the free resources to help you boost your career and reach financial freedom. And if this podcast was helpful to you in any way, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. This helps us help more people. Simply tap the rate with five stars and leave a sentence with what you liked about the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Remember, strengthening your growth mindset is your ticket to success. I'm Edward Gorbis, and we'll catch you on next week's episode.